Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our regular Thursday time slot, November 30th, around 11 a.m. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. In fact, this week, I'm sure things will have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we're joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hi, Julie. And Paige Winfield-Cunningham of The Washington Post. Welcome back, Paige. Good morning, Julie. So I guess we have to start with the tax bill, which is currently being debated on the Senate floor as we tape. Uh, It's grown in recent weeks, now has lots of health-related issues. We've talked a lot about the impact of repealing the individual mandate penalties. But one thing we haven't really talked about is the potential impact on the Medicare program. So who wants to explain how a tax bill could end up cutting Medicare? Paige. Well, yeah, I can take this one. So this is kind of flown under the radar in in some sense. So it's good we're talking about it. Um, So basically, this goes back to a 2010 law that Congress passed uh, known as PAYGO. And this says that if a bill would increase a deficit by a certain amount, that there has to be uh, cuts. And so this bill, this tax bill, would actually trigger those cuts uh, because of the deficit around $1.5 trillion that it would create unless, of course, Congress votes to waive those PAYGO rules. And it certainly has done that before, I think, like more than a dozen times, um, or if it makes up the, that deficit. Um, that seems a little bit unlikely at this point, although Congress still could do that. But if it does Unlikely that they'll Wave it or unlikely that they won't wave it. Well, I guess I guess it's open. Although I will say, um, I, I did see yesterday that Senate Majority Leader McConnell apparently promised Senator Collins that they would waive the rules because, of course, this is a big objection for her. She's a moderate Republican and she really doesn't want to see big cuts to Medicare. Also, there's a lot of seniors in Maine. Right, right. So this could be really, I think, um, a, a real big problem from her perspective. But basically, as things stand now, what the bill would do is it would trigger about um, twenty-five uh, billion dollars in annual cuts to Medicare starting next year. For the next 10 years. For the next 10 years. And that amount would actually go up. Now, I should note that um, that PAYGO laws limit the cuts to Medicare to 4% of its spending. So it actually is a relatively small amount of its spending. But but numbers-wise, it's kind of the biggest because Medicare is such a big program. Yeah, um, it, would, it would wipe out a lot of smaller the, – the, the cuts, the PAYGO cuts would wipe out a lot of smaller programs. Right. right. It's not just of, Medicare. There's, it's not just health. I mean, every federal agency – Right. I mean, HHS, but a lot of other. other Although it's not Medicaid. Medicaid is exempt from this. Right. But there's if you look at the list of I mean, there's all such a child programs. There are a lot of social and domestic policies involving food and health and pretty much everything else. Right. Right. But yeah, as things stand now, there would be some really, really hefty cuts um, to to Medicare if Congress doesn't waive those PAYGO rules. And to waive it, it requires a bipartisan vote in the Senate. Because they need 60. They need 60. And we just don't know. I mean, they're not exactly in love with each other right now. Um, There's a lot. I mean, the, the Democrats don't want to see Medicare cut, but they don't really want to bail out the Republicans and it'll be a blame game. I don't think anyone has really gamed well. I don't know how they've gamed that out yet. I think that's one of the things, though, that the Republicans seem to be very confident. Oh, we'll wait. You know, that won't happen. We'll just wave it. And that seems like a Nothing, pretty, pretty yeah. big assumption to make. Right. And even if the leadership is promising Senator Collins and perhaps others with these concerns that it'll be waived, they can't. Even if the Senate leadership is making promises, they can't commit the House. 
Yeah. Well, and they've made other. I mean, they've made other uh, semi promises too, such as like passing the CSR bill <laughs> and trying to get Murkowski and Collins on board. We still haven't seen that happen. Yeah, that that's another sort of strange one that 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 Senator Collins. Is, we should talk about this for a minute. Is very upset because the Congressional Budget Office came out uh, earlier this week uh, with a with a, a kind of obscure letter that said, uh, if you pass this bill that we've been talking about ad nauseum all fall to to return federal payment of the cost-sharing reductions. To resume, yeah. Yeah, to, 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 right, to, resume, to, to resume them, um, although in a, they're, they're getting paid just other ways. But if they were to officially put them back, that wouldn't impact uh, the reduction in coverage or the premium hikes from getting rid of the penalties for the individual mandate. And, of course, what the letter says, and it's true, the reason it wouldn't is because the CBO has, has continued to estimate that the cost-sharing reductions wouldn't go away. So it's still in their baseline. So even though they did go away. But I think the complicated part of this is that in some ways they didn't really go away because people are paying. The insurers are still subsidizing the individuals who are eligible for the subsidies, but the insurers are not getting reimbursed by the government. Instead, they're but they are getting reimbursed. Indirectly because they raise premiums. It's incredibly complicated. It is complicated. Basically, but the, but the CBO is- says that restoring the subsidies will not um, cancel out the damage from removing the mandate. And Collins and Senator Alexander and some others say they don't believe that. Right. The CBS said, like, basically premiums are still going to go up by an estimated 10 percent over a decade if you remove the mandate because, of course, you're having more healthy people drop out and then the premiums go up. And then actually there's even a ripple effect from that because then fewer people buy coverage as the premiums go up. But what Senator Collins is saying is that if they were to pass this bill, which, by the way, as we just pointed out, they can't promise that the House will pass it, even if they can get it through the Senate. I'm not even positive that McConnell can, can in good faith, tell Susan Collins, we're going to pass this. But he has not been able to control everything this year. So, uh, you know, his commitment, even if he can get A, can he really guarantee that it gets through Senate? And B, can he, he get guarantee that it gets through the House? And last time I looked, Senator McConnell wasn't in charge of the House. And, and Congressman Ryan, Speaker Ryan, who is in charge of the House, isn't always in charge of the House. So, um, you know, you can't, you can't, Assume that this will go through, but more yeah. broadly, I just I I feel I feel like this that Senator Collins and some people sort of don't quite see the idea that it's almost it's too late basically to do the CSR bill because it's already been baked in, and in fact, the federal government is sort of paying them because they're paying them through higher premium subsidies, which is why a lot of people can get you know really good deals right well, it's now. It's actually ironically more expensive for the federal government <laughs> because the premium subsidies are higher than the CSR payments would have been, which which I feel like makes the CBO letter correct, which is the idea low-income people are still getting their cost-sharing reductions and the insurance company is not are not basically eating it. They're either getting it through higher subsidies, you know, higher premium subsidies, or they're getting it from people outside the exchanges who are paying way higher premiums. But they're not they're not giving this money away, even though they're not directly getting it from the federal government, which which takes us back to the would it ameliorate the problem of uh, eliminating the penalties on the mandate? And I would think that the answer is no. I think CBO just didn't write their letter very well. You know, one other thing that's interesting is this has really kind of put Democrats in a bind. And, and you know, Senator Pat, 
Patty Murphy is, of course, infuriated Murray. that or sorry, Murray um, is is infuriated that repealing the mandate is part of the conversation. Of course, she's been kind of hammering this idea that you can't make up for the consequences of repeal the mandate with the CSRs. But I kind of wonder if they do end up repealing the mandate in a final tax overhaul and then Republicans try to pass the CSR bill. Is Murray actually going to vote against that? I mean, in some um, sense, she seems a, a little right. Yeah. In some sense, she like she's putting up a big ruckus about it for understandable reasons. But in a sense, she seems a little bit powerless here. And it, it's it also I don't think they're anticipating a freestanding bill. It would be wrapped into something much larger, and whatever it gets wrapped into is going to have to be a compromise. Which brings me to my next topic, which is the the next month in Congress and the end of year spending bill that well, now we're thinking might not be a big end of year spending well, bill. Remember in September when I kept telling, or in August, whenever it was, when I kept saying that September wasn't going to end until December. Now I'm going to tell you that 2017 might not end until 2018. Uh, the, the end of the year. Um, spending brouhaha, whatever. It's not a bill yet. And the, the spending mess is getting messier by the day. The bill that's than... needed to keep most of the government open. Yes. Let's call it that. Yes. And and we, we think there'll be a stopgap on the 8th next week. And that, you know, the, the original, the, the plan is a stopgap, a two-week stop, you know, a week or two stopgap on the 8th, come up with a deal, everybody go home and have a merry holiday of whatever breed they... Well, no, if they only do two weeks... Oh, oh, we come right, up with deal right. in the two weeks. Oh, yeah, I see. But it's not looking very likely. So it more looks, it looks like we'll have a series. Either you have a government shutdown, which I don't think pe- most people really want, or you have a series of short-term fixes that do take us into whenever they can sit down and knock their heads together, um, which is looks like it could be January. I mean, I don't rule out that, that, that you know that they can. It, it's not looking very good right now. Once they get through taxes. Do things start falling into place on spending? I mean, it, it's really hard because, you know, we're we're sitting here talking about health care, but there's things like, you know, immigration and dreamers. I mean, there's some huge, the wall, there are some huge issues out there and spending levels. How much do they go? There's, there's countless, this podcast would go right until January 1st if we tried to list every issue that they have to resolve. So it, it could be a long December. It so could what be a is, two or three months? Yeah. It could be a December so what does this mean for Chip? Because we all talked about and and Congress talked about, you know, oh well, we'll do this in December when we do the big spending bill. Chip is now two months. Um, and tomorrow it'll be two months out of you know, uh, out of money, out of authorization. Um, and states are states that weren't that worried in September are getting really worried now that we're tomorrow is December first. And there's a different feel about it. There there can be a solution as early next week. Um, on that short-term bill we were talking about, you could solve if if, you cho- if Congress chose to, they could resolve chip um, either for the full five years or a shorter period of time on the December eighth uh, temporary. It's called a CR, a temporary spending bill, a stopgap. They could do that. Many of them would like to do that. The governors of both parties would like them to do that. Um, this really puts a lot of the responsibility on the governors at this point, and a lot of pressure on them to try to. Um, f- figure out how they're going to fill the gap. And I think there's governor- no guarantee that they will do that by next week. Right. And right. we've seen, I guess, Colorado sent out for the a, first a state to preliminary. send out letters. It, yeah. It's a really preliminary step. It's actually a two-stage notification process. So they haven't told people, they've told people to start thinking about what they would do. They, they haven't said, you're, it's over, you're off, do anything else. But it's, it is the first state. I was also struck this week, um, the three of us were talking before we started talking into our microphones. There was a piece in the Dallas um, newspaper the other day on how 
Um, I mean, this is a, Texas is a really conservative state, a very anti-Obamacare state. It's not a Medicaid expansion state. Um, they're not committed as a state to expanding coverage. I think they were one of the last states that actually implemented a chip program. But they're really pushing to keep chip intact. They're pushing. They're asking for support from Washington. The officials in the state health program are trying to do everything they can well, to I, avoid I think... any kind of crisis or to avoid upsetting families or to avoid setting out notifications. So if you look at one of the most conservative um, you know, states in the country and you see that they are really trying to be protective of this program, it does suggest that you know, it has not totally gone off the rails, but it is not on the rails right now. Well, because I think you say if there's one thing that, like, everybody in the U.S. agrees on is that children should have health insurance, you know, which makes it extra, like, confusing as to why they're sort of being what you could probably characterize as somewhat irresponsible in letting the funding expire. Because particularly because they're not disagreeing about CHIP. The House and the Senate, the Democrats and the Republicans are basically on agreement on CHIP policy and funding levels. They're, the fight is how do you how do you offset it? How do you pay for it? So CHIP, they can Well, they all, could make it like the tax bill and not pay for it at all. But that's different. There are different rules. So the, um, so the, the fight really isn't about CHIP per se, which is why you could come up with a solution... They're, it's not like they're fighting about should we have CHIP or how big should it be or whether it's two-year authorization or five-year. I mean, all that stuff is resolved. It's the pay force. So, um, you know, what, how how it plays out, I don't know. But it's certainly people are more worried than they were in September. It is much more down to the wire than it had been. Um, I do still think there's ways of fixing it, and there's a lot of pressure from both Democratic and Republican states to get it fixed. And go back, you know, again, Orrin Hatch, remember, he is the Senate finance chairman. He's knee-deep in, in tax reform. I mean, that's the committee that's handling tax reform in the Senate. He's managing that bill. But as we've noted before, he is also not just a champion of CHIP, but one of the people who created CHIP. His state of Utah is one of the states that's in financial trouble over CHIP. They're going to run out of money at the end They're of December. Run out of money, and he is, um, you know, I think as soon as taxes, you know, I think that he will be able to focus. He would like to focus more on CHIP as soon as the tax isn't the eating up all the oxygen. Um, I mean, he cares about it. It is he is a champion of CHIP. Um, and and I also think, you know, th- th- there's also the always the possibility of a short term. There's always you you can you know they're good at we've said it before. You know, Congress kicks cans and they may kick this one. They may be a short term fix for a couple of more months, which they have done before. Right. Um, well, also on Capitol Hill, another thing that hasn't changed in September is that we don't have a Secretary of Health and Human Services. Um, but we did have our first confirmation hearing for Alex Azar, the the former uh, George W. Bush HHS official, now nominated by President Trump to be the next secretary. This was what we call a courtesy hearing at the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee because the committee that votes on Azar's nomination is the Finance Committee, which, as we just pointed out, is knee-deep in taxes. Actually, uh, neck-deep, probably. <laughs> knee-deep is not enough. Yeah, they're 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 up to their ears uh, in taxes, um, and and then chip, and eventually one presumes they will have an Azar hearing. Um, I was actually surprised that chip didn't come up in the hearing yesterday. It seemed to be mostly about drug prices. Yeah, a lot of it was about drug prices, which I think a lot of us had really anticipated, given his background at Eli Lilly and um, the fact that the price of insulin went up so dramatically during during his time there. And so he certainly got drilled. I think like one of the most fiery exchanges was probably with Elizabeth Warren, who asked him some pretty pointed questions. And, you know, he... Um, 
you know, he I I guess he said like what I kind of expected him to say in a sense. I mean, you weren't really going to expect like a Republican appointee to to back some of these like, you know, ideas around negotiations that Democrats have pushed for. Um, he said he talked mostly about um competition and improving competition with generics and between brand name drugs um, and then under uh, trying to halt fraud and that sort of thing. Um, that was mostly his response. You know, he also got asked about kind of his approach to the Affordable Care Act, which I thought was was really interesting. Uh, Elizabeth Warren actually also kind of drilled him on the question of whether he would back um uh, going back to a longer enrollment period of three months rather than the six-week period. Which was originally, the idea was originally in the Obama administration. Right. Just the Trump administration did it a year earlier than was <laughs> anticipated. Right. Well, and it, to, to base that with the idea being to match the enrollment period, I think, for, for Medicare. Um, and I think, like, Azar had a pretty, you know, diplomatic answer. He was like, well, I'll look at the data and see, you know, how enrollment shakes out and what the numbers look like. Um, but, you know, and I think he was, like, pretty careful to say, like, if the Affordable Care remains the law of the land as it is. It's it's the duty of the secretary of HHS to to carry it out and, and enforce it. So I think like, you know, he there weren't a lot of responses that like really, really shocked me, I would say, out of out of the hearing. It was kind of a boring. Hearing. But there were two things that were striking. One is the fact that it was a drug price hearing. It was not an Obamacare and he, hearing. And he said that in his own testimony. He didn't he mention said, repeal in his opening statement Right. He at said all. that drug prices, I mean, his first priority said was drug prices. I mean, he just decided to go out and like yeah, I'm coming from a drug company, but I think the drug prices are too expensive. And the second thing is, you know, Rand Paul really hit him on drug prices and uh, has indicated he might not vote for him. So over importation. So, um, again, it's early days, but that was I mean, the Democrats are not embracing him, but they're also not in full you know, full-scale attack mode, right? They could do a lot worse, they're, I think, is, pretty there, quiet. is their feeling they're, about this. Right. And they've, they, you know, they're criticizing him. I don't expect him to get a lot of Democratic votes. He could get some, including from his home state. He's currently an Indiana resident. I mean, he could get his home state. He could pick up a few others. Um, but, you know, if Rand Paul doesn't vote for him, it gets tighter and harder to get him through, although I think we all anticipate him getting in, through. In a sense, it was refreshing to kind of see like issues that affect more Americans being discussed because so often when the Affordable Care Act has been like the focus, it does kind of obscure the fact that it's actually we're talking about coverage for a pretty small portion of Americans. And in reality, many, many more people are affected by high drug prices. And um uh, Azar mentioned a couple other things that would be his top priorities. He talked a little bit about trying to improve payment models and kind of furthering that work, which I think was kind of an interesting contrast to Tom Price, because, of course, Price very famously was opposed to kind of these mandatory um, experiments and, and actually had pulled back somewhat on that over the summer. And so that's something I think will be interesting to watch if, if Azar is actually confirmed and kind of how he handles the, the innovation and the payment models there. Right, because under Price and, and Seema Verma, they're being rolled back and changed, and there are indications that more of that is to come. And we know that Secretary, when Price was Secretary, he had some really different ideas about what to use the Innovation <laughs> he was Center pretty for. pretty clear about that, too. Right. So, so I mean, these, these words that people use about, you know, value, and it, it's unclear what it would the specifics would be what Azar, if he becomes secretary, how he would pursue this move toward greater value and rewarding for quality and not volume and all those things. We don't know. He was not asked to spell out, you know, what a bundling demonstration would look like under him. So we don't know. But the tone was much more consistent um, with what the Obama administration had been doing in this area, which had not been that controversial. I mean, there is a fair amount of bipartisan 
buy-in about the general concept of moving to a value-based system or a quality over quantity yeah, system. Yeah, a, a lot of those, a lot of these ideas came from Republicans. Right. In fact, they are sort of the foundation for the big physician payment change that went through, you know, the four health committees unanimously on unanimous roll call votes. So, I mean, there, you know, everybody, there, there is wide bipartisan agreement on the idea of this. Obviously, how you do it, and I think Price was sort of an outlier on that. He was one of the the few people who didn't who didn't like some of these experiments. And he had a whole other set of experiments that were very, very, very physician friendly that really would have fundamentally altered the nature of Medicare. But they're not happening right now. I think like it it was sort of unfortunate in a way that it was contained in that some of these models in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation was in the Affordable Care Act, I believe, because that was like why it got sort of politicized in a sense that Republicans kind of rolled their opposition to the ACA. Yeah, but it wasn't that political. I mean, compared to everything else, they, you know, they... they, Well, not compared to other parts of the law. It was the one of the least controversial. They never tried to repeal the Innovation Center, yeah. right? I mean, there was... Although there's talk about... There's there's still talk about Republicans trying to... No, they want to use it, it for their own purposes. Yeah. That's why they realize, oh, good thing we never tried to repeal it. But even in the height of the, you know, repeal vote every single week and when, you know, a couple of years ago in the House where they re- tried to repeal something every day or every week or every other week, it wasn't really a target. There, there has been some bipartisan buy-in. So, you know, what Azar said yesterday was pretty consistent, but until he's, you know, we see really what regs and models look like, we don't know. And, of course, sooner or later, the Finance Committee is going to have to get around to doing this, uh, it this could, nomination. It could still be pretty quick. I mean, I, I, I think they'd like to do this before Christmas if they could. Oh, yeah. And, you know, maybe they can't with so much other stuff going on. I mean, I think the anticipation is they want him to be able to be there when everybody gets back in January. Yeah. Um, so finally, before before we get to our extra credits, um, the National Academy of Medicine has a new report out just today on drug prices. If you don't know what the NAM is, just know that it was the same independent research body that touched off the national debate about medical errors in the late 1990s. So it's it when it speaks, people tend to listen. Um, this any any uh, sort of summary? I know it's just coming out about what this uh, these recommendations include. There's nothing really surprising, right? No, I mean, some of it, it, it's a very long, detailed report. None of us have read all 140 pages or whatever. It's just coming out now. I mean, there is talk. It does call for a greater role of government negotiations, and it does call um, for Medicare setting formulas. In other words, which drugs you're going to cover and which aren't. Uh, I haven't read all the details to know how broad um, a mandate for negotiations they're calling for, but it is they are endorsing the idea of Medicare being more of a market player in the drug area. And that's one of the things that, that sort of interested me about the report, because, you know, we've heard for years um, from Democrats and some Republicans that, you know, Medicare should be able to negotiate drug prices. But of course, the Congressional Budget Office has said repeatedly that that wouldn't save any money because Medicare basically under the Medicare drug law has to cover almost every drug. So if you can't say no, you can't, there's no basis for negotiation. So for the first time, this report is at least suggesting the possibility of being able to say no, which would set off a whole new, uh, you know, political conflagration about, oh, my God, who's going to decide which drugs get covered? Right. And, and um, you know, the people who are now taking drug X and no longer would have to switch to drug Y, I mean, it, it becomes very complicated. Can people get upset? In some cases, um, you know, people do well on know, like statins, people couldn't switch from one to another. And in other cases, you know, people have weird sensitivities or 
interactions and, you know, they need to be on a specific drug. So even if there was a formulary in Medicare, I would imagine it would be tiered, that certain things would be the priority drugs and you can get them cheaper. But if your doctor really insisted that you needed something else, it would not necessarily be completely inaccessible. But we haven't gotten to the point where no. we're, we're doing this yet. And of but course, we see this constantly in, uh, you know, in private insurance. I assume right. we all have, I mean, I have a tiered drug plan. I assume you guys all have tiered drug plans too. But but this, this would have been, I mean, I think at the time the Medicare uh, drug benefit was was passed in 2003 that was not so common. And there was, I remember that epic fights about how many drugs in each class and which drugs and, you know, but in, in, in essence, you know, basically Medicare and Medicaid pretty much cover every drug with, with some exceptions. Um, and that's that this, if the, if you want to, you know, take down drug prices using federal negotiating authority, that's how you're going to have to do it. Right. But it's not something that the government has, I mean, Democrats have been pushing for negotiations since the debate over the Medicare drug law back in 2002, 2003. It hasn't happened. So just because there's a report, even by a very influential body, it does not mean that it's about to happen. But at least maybe we're going to talk about drug prices, which everybody keeps saying we're going to talk about drug prices. And then we've pretty much spent the year not talking about drug prices. Well, we've talked about them with nothing. Just is nothing not. is. I, when I say we, I meant official Washington. Well, President Trump has talked about drug prices and he's tweeted about drug prices and he's said he's going to have an executive order about drug prices. And we haven't seen it. Well, there's been hearings, too, right? Haven't there been some hearings in health? There's more last couple, year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think there were more last year. I mean, last year we had EpiPen and Martin Shkreli, so... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, we've had we've had. There's a lot of talk about drug prices and not a lot of action. But here's something that will add to more of the talk. All right, let us wrap things up this week with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Who wants to start, Paige? Yeah, I can start. Um, so not to always toot our own horn at the at the post, but I was really struck by a story written by my colleague Terrence last week or, or the week before. And he did kind of this in-depth um, dive looking at the amount of time that people have to wait for a ruling from uh, Social Security judges as to whether they can get Social Security disability benefits and Medicare and Medicaid. And it's pretty staggering the amount of time that they, that they have to wait. And actually, it's gotten a lot worse in recent years because – uh, the Social Security Administration's budget has basically stayed stagnant, even though we've seen millions more people applying. Um, and so my colleague actually found out through getting some data on this that uh, more than 18,000 people have died while waiting for a judge's decision. And that's actually increased 15 percent um, uh, over the past year or so. Um, and so he actually um, went down to Mississippi and, and talked to this man um, named Joe Stewart and, and just kind of like it goes through his story and kind of uses it to illustrate how a lot of these people, you know, they can't actually work while they're in the application process. And so they're kind of stuck in this holding pattern for, um, you know, hundreds of, of days. I think the average amount of time that they have to wait is 597 days for a hearing. Um, and so this man's story was just really kind of heartbreaking and a really good way to kind of illustrate um, a lot of the problems that are in the system and how they really need a lot more resources. That's a really good story. Joanne. There was a piece, in, a heartbreaking piece in The Atlantic, um, written by Admiral James Winfeld, who I believe was the number two person on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And it's about the death of his son, Jonathan, from um, fentanyl-laced heroin. He had an opioid addiction. Uh, the subhead is, as an admiral, I helped run the most powerful military on earth, but I couldn't save my son from the scourge of opioid addiction. 
And what's striking, I mean, we've all heard and read terribly sad stories. Um, I think this is a family that did everything. I mean, they knew their son had some mental illness issues. They got him help. They acknowledged the addiction. They treated the addiction. They spent a fortune on the addiction, which they were, you know, talked about. What It wasn't all covered under TRICARE, which is the coverage military for military families. Terms. This is a family that clearly had all the connections in the world. Um, they, they were, they embraced the, they didn't put their heads in the sand and they still couldn't save their kid. Uh, well, my, uh, extra credit this week is from ProPublica. It is yet another in their series, which we are also doing here at Kaiser Health News on the ridiculous prices charged for medical care in this country and the overuse of not always necessary care. And while you really should read the story, the headline kind of tells you what you need to know. It says a hospital charged $1,877 to pierce a five-year-old's ears. This is why health care costs so much. And it is it is that it is quite the opening anecdote about the, this kid and her uh, and her ear piercing and her her mother's quest to to get to this this charge waived. Um, so that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us too. If you have comments, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at PW underscore Cunningham. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.